We're going to read from God's Word uh, just as we start this morning. And if you've got a Bible on you, it's been the same text for the last three weeks. So we're, we're kicking off of this text and then we'll kind of jump into a couple of other kind of side texts and some of the points that draw from this. So we're reading from Mark chapter 8 verses 34 through to 9, 1. And you will know this because we've been speaking it over the last number of weeks. Mark 8, 34 to 9, 1. This is God's Word. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us loudly and clearly today. So we're into the third week uh, in our series called Follow Me, okay? And it's been a series which has really been digging into the nature of discipleship. I realize if you've been here over the last three or so weeks, this is the third time you're getting this blurb from me, all right? But the whole idea is that we're asking the question, what is the nature of discipleship? Not what are some discipleship practices or good books you could read or things that you should do. We're talking about the nature of it, okay? And this is September, right? Life is starting up for most of us. I realize the weird world that most of us live in where the new year doesn't feel like the new year. September feels like the new year. We've never got over our schooling in some ways, right? So we're in this season of life which feels like life starting up. And it feels even more profound this time around because of COVID and all the stuff. And life actually feels like, oh, it's starting Again, there's room to breathe. Life feels a bit more open, feels more than ever that it is a season of start. And as you start that season, the heart of this series has been to help us take a good look at our own following of Jesus. It's been to poke and provoke and prod and try and help us take a good look at how am I following Jesus? What stuff is lacking from the way that I'm following? What stuff have I kind of bolted on and built around the stuff and that's become more important than the core things of following Jesus? And so what is the nature of following Jesus? That's been the question that we've been kind of asking. What does it mean to follow him? So we've explored this passage, okay? We had a kind of intro week where we did the overview. Then we've explored two other headings, okay, that all spring from this passage. And it's really this line. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me, okay? Whoever wants, that was the first week, desire. Following Jesus needs desire. If it doesn't have desire, then it won't work, right? Human beings, uh, where you go flows from the heart. We follow our loves and our longings. It is the compass, if you want, the, the magnet at the heart of our lives. Everything else relates to the things we desire. We need to desire following Jesus. And then denial, right? Following Jesus has a good degree of self-denial. We are setting down ourselves to go after the one who might show us and give us our true selves. And this week, 
we land on these words, take up their cross. Now, Jesus isn't just talking about carrying any burden, right? It's not just any burden that he's referring to here, right? He's talking about his death. In other words, whoever is going his way is taking up the same death that he took. We are carrying our crosses, carrying his death in our lives. Now, when Luke gives this same text, okay, in Luke 9, 23, he adds this other word, daily. Must take up their cross daily, is what Luke writes in his account. In other words, the way of the cross means a daily commitment to go Jesus' way. It's not a one-time thing. It's a daily commitment to go his way, to let go and get over myself and to go his way, to die And as we do to find life, right? Those are some of the things we've been exploring over the last number of weeks. But here's the thing, right? That daily handing over, in fact, just about any daily handing over is not a natural thing for us, is it? It doesn't come easily to us every day to choose to like lessen ourselves and and kind of be more of someone else, right? That's not, that doesn't come easy to any of us. None of us find ourselves choosing to do it. We're not inclined that way. So how then? Well, then it's today's word, discipline. The way of Jesus means desire, means denial. And today we're thinking about discipline. The Olympics um, were on again in the summer. The bizarre quirk of Tokyo 2020 happening in 2021, right? That's going to be in a pub quiz in like 20 years' time. Like, write that one down. That one's going to come up, okay? So the Olympics were on. And one of my favorite things about the Olympics is, you know, how everybody gets kind of very taken with obscure sports, right? We're all all of a sudden become big fans of powerlifting or some, you know, whatever it is. My father-in-law arrived in the house one day to do our childcare, and he was like, did you see the women's badminton last night? It was superb. And I'm like, no, I didn't, because... I don't really care about badminton, right? I mean, it's great and all, but, you know, it's not my thing. And one of the things that I marvel about when the Olympics is on, right, is the sheer preparation of Olympic athletes, right? Just astonishing, right? Four years, in this case, five years of work that could all be over in as little as 10 seconds. Like, It's incredible when you think about it, right? The sheer dedication, the daily grind for what? Five years, four years most of the time. For what? A 10-second race for some individuals. It's madness, right? And then I read about Michael Phelps, okay? The most decorated Olympian of them all, right? 28 medals, 23 of them gold, right? That's probably more than Northern Ireland has ever won, right? He himself, okay? 28 medals. Anyway, his training regime, right? I was reading about this. It arrived on the Olympic website during the summertime, okay? And this is it, right? In terms of training, Phelps would train for almost six hours a day, 365 days a year, right? That's pretty impressive. You're all like, wow. I mean, I wish I could do that. But that's not the standout bit, right? That's not even the bit that's impressive. The standout bit is the diet, right? Here we go. For breakfast, Michael Phelps every day had three fried egg sandwiches with cheese, tomatoes, lettuce, fried onions, and mayonnaise, followed by three chocolate chip pancakes. That was not all, because after sandwiches and pancakes, it was time for a five-egg omelet, three sugar-coated slices of French toast, a bowl of grits, and two cups of coffee to wash everything down. However, on the way to training, if he felt like having anything more, he would stop and have a go. For lunch, he would then have half a kilogram of pasta, two large ham and cheese sandwiches on white bread, smothered with mayonnaise, and another set of energy drinks, whereas for dinner, add a pound of pasta with carbonara sauce, a large pizza and energy drinks. 10,000 calories a day. 
Some of you are like, oh, I could do that bit. <laughs> Madness, right? Madness. I feel like we just brushed past the six hours of training to like just take in what he had to eat to be able to do all of that, right? But when we're not training for the Olympics, and it's just our life that we're talking about, how are we disciplined? How are we all doing with that idea of discipline? I had this moment the other night, okay, I was sitting in my living room. I was reading about John Stott, who was kind of a famous, uh, he was the rector at All Souls, Langham Place in London. He also, um, for lots of us growing up, uh, he is like that uh, Bible Speaks Today commentary series, the little orange commentaries. They're nearly all John Stott, right? And he was a commentator, a theologian. He was incredibly influential for a whole generation of people, still is today. Anyone that preaches and teaches, John Stott is going to feature along the way, right? And I read this thing during the week about John Stott's discipline, okay? For over 50 years in ministry, he and a secretary, I can't remember her name, but she was every bit as important as Stott was in this particular exercise. For 50 years, he kept a note system, right? And in that note system, there were three categories, okay? The note system had every sermon, illustration, story, item of news that he found interesting, right? Every single one, right? That was one section of notes. Second section of notes, every, a brief kind of synopsis of every book he ever read. Third section of notes, okay, was a sermon outline for every sermon he ever preached. For 50 years, alphabetical and dated in terms of time slots. He kept this rigorous, kind of organized approach to his thinking and his thoughts so that anytime he needed to dig in at something, it was right there. And as I was reading about this, marveling at the discipline in this man's life, I looked up at my wife who was doing schoolwork. And at this point, Joy had managed to take over the entirety of the living room floor with all of her schoolwork at this point of time. And I was like, John, stop. Joy. John Stott. I'm not roasting my wife, by the way, at this point in time. I realize there are different working patterns, and some people do the like, get it all out, and then gather it back together again. I also realize that the great many of us, myself included, are more likely to work like Joy than they are to work like John Stott. That is the truth, right? But it got me thinking about our lives, and how so often they're inclined to look more like the living room floor sprawled with stuff than everything ordered. Work, relationships, interests, health, relationship with Jesus, family, whatever else, right? We tend to have them all on the go, all of the time. Never really satisfied lots of us with how we're dealing with any single one of them. We're just spinning plates is the way that we talk about it all of the time. Just dealing with them when the pressure or the crisis comes. As one older leader told me earlier on in my life in ministry when I started, Dave, you could, fl- you could go in a million directions in your life or you could fly in only one. Discipline. And what's the problem, right? How do we end up with a life that has too many plates spinning most of the time? Well, for most of us, it's speed, isn't it? It's not time. It's speed. We live in this world where there is this sense that anything worthwhile, right? Anything should be able to be acquired at once, right? We live in a time and a place where we just think we should be able to like pick up, you know, pick something off the shelf and then our lives will look like that. It's why everywhere you look, it's your five top tips for your perfect body, your five top tips to the perfect marriage. You know, whatever it is, we want it all at once. 
We love an overnight success. We believe we can just pick things up like that and become like that, even when it comes to things like character, substance, and identity. But we all know it doesn't work like that, does it? And discipline is not the practice that makes perfect, right? Discipline makes possible that which wasn't possible at the start. Discipline makes possible. In fact, that's the whole point. The Instagram and YouTube personality, David Goggins, if you've ever watched him, he is dubbed the toughest man alive, right? That's a big title. Uh, don't believe me? Well, here's just a number of the things he's achieved. Is that he's the only service person in the U.S. military to ever complete elite training in the Navy, Army, and Air Force. He is a Navy SEAL, Army Ranger, and Air Force tactical air controller. I gather that's a very impressive thing. He ran his first 100-mile running race, okay, with zero preparation, or training, he splintered bones in his legs and he put himself into acute kidney failure at the same time, right? He finished, by the way, just so you know, okay? Anyway, I can't possibly recommend that you look at his Instagram because his language is quite something, but it's motivational, all right? Um, And David Goggins is an incredible individual. This is what he writes, okay? Our culture has become hooked on the quick fix life hack efficiency, Everyone is on the hunt for that simple action algorithm that nets maximum profit with the least amount of effort. There's no denying this attitude may get you some of the trappings of success if you're lucky, but it will not lead to a calloused mind or self-mastery. If you want to master the mind and remove your governor, you'll have to become addicted to hard work because passion and obsession, even talent, are only useful tools if you have the work ethic to back them up. We need discipline, especially when it comes to the Christian life. The thing is, most of the time, it is talent and gifts and all that that makes us stand up and pay attention to other individuals, isn't it? It's their gifts. It's what we see on the surface that makes us go, wow, I would love it if if I was able to do that. I would love it if my life looked like that. We look at the surface stuff, but it is the discipline that mines out a life worth following, a life that will stand the test of time. And so what is discipline to the Christian life? Well, I want to say two things today. Discipline is rhythms of life, and discipline is rhythms of grace. The first thing is discipline is that it's rhythms of life, These are the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. This is what it says. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, but they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Those words in the middle, strict training, right? Sounds great, doesn't it? We're all in, okay? In fact, our favorite favorite fitness motivation tough guy, David Goggins, once again, calls it the relentless self-discipline to schedule suffering into your every day, every day. You're like, sign me up, I'm in. If that's what the Christian life looks like, I'm in for scheduling suffering every day, right? 
And I have learned, right, that with cycling, I cycle quite a bit, uh, that cycling or any fitness-related hobby, okay, I've found for myself and lots of people at my age and stage of life, okay, it tends to be peaks and troughs, right? I tend to find that, like, when I was younger, I didn't have kids, my fitness levels were, like, at worst level, but at best, always going upwards, right? Like, I was getting better all the time. Now, I'm like peaks and troughs. There'll be seasons where I cycle loads, and I've got good form, and I feel great, and then seasons like September, where school starts and life gets mental, where I literally haven't cycled at all, and I go off a cliff. And the thing is, now, because I've cycled for a while, I know what it takes to get back up again. And so the problem is dread, right? Like, I mean, quite literally, if my friends are like, do you want to come out and cycle on Saturday morning? I will be sitting, forcing porridge into my mouth on a Saturday morning, full of dread. I'm like, I know what's going to happen when I get out here. This is going to hurt. This is going to be terrible. Why would I want to do it? Oh, it's a, it's, has it started raining out there, Joy? Ah, it started raining. Don't go. Dread, right? Pure dread. And the thing is, right, we can sometimes feel the same when it comes to discipline, don't we? People start talking about the way that we need to start reordering our lives and habits we need to form, and you're like, ooh, I don't have time for that. I mean, where am I going to fit that in? Does that mean getting up at 5.45 every morning and being one of those people? Like, dread, right? Like, when we look at the stories of people or leaders whose lives we see as worth imitating, right? Whether that's people we hold up, people like Eugene Peterson or John Stott that we've mentioned earlier on, or it's business leaders or it's athletes or it's whoever it is. Like when we look at their lives, right, and we think, I want that. And then we read their biography or people talk about their habits and then we learn about what it takes to get that. You're like, no, but I don't want that, right? I want the life. I'm not prepared for the lifestyle. I want the life, but I'm not prepared for the lifestyle. And yet the thing about discipline is that it's actually the way to freedom. Discipline's the way to freedom. It's not a way to be enslaved. It's the way to life. Discipline is the lifestyle that leads to life. As Paul writes to the Corinthian church, we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And here's the thing, right? This whole chapter um, in 1 Corinthians 9, right? The first 23 verses, uh, as Paul writes, are all about him talking about his surrendering of himself, right? As an apostle, okay, that's a key role. He's still saying, but I am less. I'm surrendering myself. I'm giving up my rights and my entitledness for the sake of serving Jesus. Everything he is, right? Self-denial is the way of Jesus we were talking about last week. Paul is all in. First 23 verses are all about that. He surrendered himself to God's way. He's modeling self-denial, right? And what does he do next? He calls the Corinthian church to discipline. Why? So that they may receive the gift everlasting. So that they might know the life that is truly life. And the theme of this passage in 1 Corinthians 9, right? It's all about athletics, okay? As you sort of saw for the first line, it's talking about runners, And that would be a relevant thing to the people of Corinth, okay? Uh, We probably all know that Greeks famously loved athletic competition. That was a big deal at that time. Still is today. And most famously, it was the Olympics, which are the same Olympics, broadly speaking, that we have today. But behind the Olympics, the second most famous set of games, right, was the games called the Isthmian Games. They happened in a small place not far from Corinth, okay? So athletic competition, winning prizes, all of that sort of stuff. They would have known all about that. It was relevant language to them in that place at that time. They understood the glory of winning. And yet Paul says that all that physical training and gold medals, they won't 
last. Quite literally, they won't last. Their prize was perishable. The winners of the Isthmian games, they won a wreath of parsley, wild celery, or pine. Right? It feels like a lot to have gone through all of that for another thing, a pine around your head. But anyway, the Olympics, by the way, of that time, they won a wreath of wild olives. That's not much better, right? Life, real life, life beyond all we'll know in this life. Life that's worth the training and the discipline. That's what he's saying is the prize for those who are prepared to go the way of discipline. But here's the thing, right? You might hear that and think, oh, dread, drudgery. No way I want to do that. I'm not prepared to do that. But as I read about, you know, pro cyclists or endurance athletes, all right, and just about any kind, most of them will say along the way that the only reason they're able to do what they do and train the way they do and discipline themselves the way they do is actually because they kind of love it. They kind of love the suffering. They kind of love that feeling of coming in and their body is tired. They kind of love it. These are rhythms of life and the reality is we need to love them. There's this beautiful line in Genesis 29. It's telling the story of Jacob and he falls in love with Rachel, the younger daughter of Laban. And in order to be able to marry her, he works for seven years, right? He works for seven years. And yet this is what he has to say. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Discipline is about forming rhythms of life. And when we have desire, and when we begin to deny ourselves. The discipline that following Jesus asks of us is one that we begin to give gladly. Because we long for depth, don't we? When we think about our lives, we long for depth in our lives. We long for meaningful relationships. We long for meaningful stuff that speaks to the heart of what's going on. We can only survive for so long on the surface level. Hi, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Right? You've got to go further than that in your life. We long for depth. And rhythms of death, right? They look like forming habits around just external stuff. How things look on the outside appearances. How often we do churchy stuff and all of that, right? That is not the way to life. It's all surface. Discipline invites us into deep living. We don't need more intelligent people in the church or more charismatic people in the church or more gifted people in the church. What the church needs it's people who want to go after deep living. John Ortberg writes this. For many of us, the great danger is not that we'll renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. I don't want a skimmed life. And I don't believe that you want a skimmed life either. I don't want my relationship with Jesus to just scratch the top layer of what he, of who he is, of what he's doing in the world and what he's doing in my life. I don't want that. I want to be somebody that goes a bit further than just skimming off the top all the time. I want depth in my life, don't you? And discipline is the only way to get it. 
So in dark seasons of life, right, talking about some disciplines, some things you might do, because I get that everyone most weeks go, well, how do I do that then? And what are the disciplines that might help me get there? In dark seasons of life, I might learn to lament. I might learn the discipline of thanksgiving in times when I feel anything but thankful. In brighter times in my life, I might give myself to things like Lectio Divina or generosity. In seasons of longing, I might give myself to fasting or to solitude. In every season of life, to prayer and to worship and to slowing down. These are rhythms of life. When I fell in love with joy, and I knew I wanted to marry her, right? But I was skint, okay? And I knew I wanted to buy her a ring, and I knew I wanted it to be a surprise. And I'm not judging people that, you know, take their fiancé, well, their fiancé-to-be along to pick the ring. I wanted to be the guy that, like, had bought it and thought it through and all of that sort of stuff. So I wanted to save money and go and get the ring and do it myself and really surprise her with the ring whenever the day came, okay? And I was working in Belfast, and I was trying to think at the time, like, what is the strategy for saving money here? Right? How am I going to get enough money to buy an engagement ring? And I realized at the time that I was working here, I was, like, buying lunch every day. Lunch was like five to seven pounds, something like that in around the city center. And I thought, I had this idea, it was like, what if I stopped eating lunch? So I just stopped eating lunch, right? And I was saving everything else, you know, doing everything you can, visiting your granny all the time and all that sort of stuff. Right? I was saving the best that I could. And I stopped eating lunch. That was my strategy. So for several months, I just stopped eating lunch. And the seven pounds that would have went on that went into a little account and I saved away and I chipped away. And seven pounds in the grand scheme of things is not much, right? But in the discipline of daily seven pounds, it all adds up. Here's the thing. I love lunch, right? The reality is I love lunch. I love a good sandwich, right? So it wasn't out of any great like, oh, it was just a joy to stop eating lunch. I hated it. I love lunch. But here's the thing, right? I had a picture or had an idea of where I wanted my life to go, of what I wanted my life in the future to look like. And so I was prepared to be disciplined. And the truth is that soon every single skipped lunch felt like it got me a little bit closer to the end that I had in mind. And that's what discipline does. You have a picture at the start, a picture of a life worth living, a picture of what Jesus can do and does do. You have that in your head and in your heart. When you come to faith in Jesus, that is right there. Most people I know when they come to faith, they're like, I want to do everything, right? Everything, right? You're all go. You have a picture of what following him looks like. And then life comes and discouragement comes. And prayers seemingly don't get answered. Or you might go through a season where God seemingly doesn't speak. Or discouraging things might happen in your life or health or whatever it is. They come along and you think, well, that was the picture. But my life looks like this. Discipline. Discipline is the way that every day our life begins to fall a bit more in line with the picture and the hunger and the desire that we had at the start. If we want to be deep people, if we want life, then we have to begin to adopt the lifestyle. It's not enough just to say, I want the life, but I'm not prepared for the lifestyle. 
That will never work. If you have a personal trainer, they're probably going to tell you that immediately. Like, you want this, but you won't do that. You're not going to get this. The Christian life is in many ways exactly the same. Discipline is about rhythms of life. The discipline makes possible that which wasn't at the start. But secondly, discipline is about rhythms of grace. It's about rhythms of grace. And I wonder if at any stage in your life you've ever been in the position of coming to terms with an uncomfortable truth, right? Maybe it's that your feet smell or something. I don't know, right? You've had to come to terms with something uncomfortable about yourself. When I got married, uh, we, we all, we'd obviously have areas of conflict in our lives. Obviously, Joy and I are both very shy and retiring individuals, so this rarely ever happened, okay? But we would have these areas of conflict, right? And then when it came to subjects, we discovered after a little while that I would ambush Joy, right? I didn't mean to, it wasn't intentional, but it would happen all the time because she is largely an external processor. If there was something going on, an issue in life, work or whatever, something I was doing, she she would kind of approach and, and everything that she was thinking was kind of, that was coming out all at once. It was external. She was thinking as she was speaking, okay? And that's kind of how she works, but that isn't how I work, right? I'm an internal processor. So by the time I actually share something with her, I've already done an awful lot of thinking about it. And so it wasn't a conversation. It was an ambush. I had a three-point sermon about why we were going to do this or that, whatever the thing was. And it took time and pain to find out about myself that we couldn't do conflict this way because it wasn't fair, right? And it was an uncomfortable truth to find out about myself because then once I started to look at myself, I realized I did it all the time. Like if I was trying to work something out in leadership or I was trying to do something around church and I would have a conversation with people, like I already had it pretty well figured out as to how we were going to get there. It wasn't open. It was closed. And it was an uncomfortable truth. And maybe you've had to engage with those about yourself at times or in your family, your friends, your working environment as we've been coming through big topics in the last number of years like racism or uh, attitudes towards females or attitudes towards the planet. Maybe you've realized actually there's some uncomfortable things about your life or people around you or maybe just in lockdown you find out that your coping was driven towards comfort food or too much alcohol or spending too much money on things or binging TV or just pouring over Instagram. And the thing is that in one of the passages that we read often, especially in the translation from the message that we read a lot, we find out that there is an uncomfortable truth right in the heart of it as well. Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, in the message translation, this is what it says. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. See, there it is. We need to learn to receive grace. The word for learn in the passage, right? It's the same root word, methetes, okay? It's one of the words that we commonly attribute to disciple, okay? We, we commonly use that word for a, a disciple because it's a learner, right? This is the same word. We're learners. And grace, it turns out, is something that we need to have the discipline to learn. And that's the thing about grace, Right? Because it's a word that's so very central to the Christian experience, isn't it? 
It appears as we talk about Jesus and the cross. It appears as we talk about our lives as ones who've decided to give our lives to Jesus. Grace is what we receive, right? In the middle of some of our most treasured songs, amazing grace. And right in the middle of our Christian vocabulary is this word grace. And yet it turns out it's not something that we particularly understand. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was an author, a pastor, a teacher, theologian who lived and worked throughout the period of Nazi Germany, okay? It was an incredibly turbulent time, as you might expect, in Germany around that time. He was eventually martyred um, in many ways by the Nazis, and his writing remains really provocative today. In fact, he's one of those guys whose writing is kind of, kind of in fashion at this moment of time. Lots of people digging back in to Bonhoeffer. And lots of that's because some of the things he had to say about discipleship, following Jesus and the church, right? And in the very first line of chapter one of his book, The Cost of Discipleship, right? This is what it says. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We are fighting today for costly grace. And then he goes on. Cheap grace means grace as a doctrine, a principle, a system. It means forgiveness of sins proclaimed as a general truth. The love of God taught us the Christian conception of God. An intellectual assent to the idea is held to be itself sufficient to secure remission of sins. That's the thing. When it comes to what we do with it, we so often get it wrong. Grace is not just an idea. It's not just a concept that we're like, oh, I'm okay with it. I I understand it, right? Kind of all up in here in our heads. It doesn't work like that. And when we keep it in that place of concept, it means that very often in our lives, we go about it one of two ways, okay? The first is to say, Jesus has done enough, right? Grace means I'm good. I'm covered. My life is sweet. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven so I can basically live whatever way I want right now because grace has got me, right? That is the do nothing approach to when it comes to grace. Or the other side is that we never quite come to terms with grace, And as a result, we feel we still need to earn it. So we do and do and do. In fact, we do everything believing that it secures us God's love. That is the do everything approach. Most of us do nothing or we do everything. And neither of those two things work, right? Of course, grace calls out of us that we engage with the transformation God is working in our lives and in our world. And of course, we have to come to terms with the scandal that it is free and stop striving, right? Both of the kind of ideas in there are generally solid. Of course, we have to come to terms with those. But that's not all that it means. Richard Foster writes of grace as disciplined grace. It is grace because it is free and it is disciplined because there is something for us to do. We need to learn grace. That's astonishing to lots of us a lot of the time. We need to learn it and learn it and learn it. And discipline is where we form rhythms of grace. We need these because the normal way for us to go about trying to deal with the sin and the stuff in our lives, the brokenness in our world, is just to try harder, isn't it? We just exercise all of our willpower towards getting the stuff out of our lives, don't we? Believing that if we just, if we just squeeze hard enough, right? If we just try hard enough, if we just get determined enough, we can beat it, right? The anger, the fear, the bitterness, the pride, the lust, the unforgiveness, whatever it is. If we just try hard enough, 
So we pray against it and we fight against it and we set ourselves against it. And then after a while, we find out that still we'll fall short. And sooner rather than later, we realize that we can't will our way out of the mess in our lives. We're talking about discipline today. And discipline always has with it kind of actions, right? But the reality is we can't will our way out of the mess of our lives. It's not possible. Right into the Colossians, Paul ends up listing some of the ways people try to hold back sin in their lives. And he writes this, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch these rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. There's those words, self-imposed worship. Some translations give it better as will-worship. What an incredible phrase. And how spot on for our lives. You see, when we truly believe that we can just will ourselves into life and out of sin, if only we try hard enough. That's what he's saying. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, right? That's just willing ourselves to be better. If we truly believe that we can do all that by ourselves in our own strength, then we're just worshiping our wills. And there is no room for grace. And perhaps that's why we don't understand it. Because we don't believe we need it. Jesus says the way of discipline is the way to learn grace. These are habits that help us understand and be transformed by something so central to the work of Jesus in our lives. And the thing is about learning rhythms of grace Letting grace work truly in us so that we might work it out is that it's probably the hardest, probably the hardest thing about that is being disciplined with it because it means that we become vulnerable. And we don't like being vulnerable, do we? In order to let grace work, we need to be vulnerable, don't we? It's a bit like learning to be loved by another person, right? It doesn't work if we don't open up. We can't truly be loved by another if there's no vulnerability in us. It only works if we're vulnerable, if we give access to the whole me. Because if we do, then it might change us. And like many people in my generation, okay, houseplants are a thing for us, okay? I know lots of people here, millennials, we treasure a good Monstera plant, okay? Confession time. I feel like we're doing confession time every week here at church. But in the early years of our marriage, the plant death toll in our house was pretty high, okay? You know, whenever you go to like Ikea and has a big sticker that says unkillable, I can categorically say they are killable, right? We just killed plant after plant after plant. We weren't doing so great with indoor plants in those years. Now, actually, we're doing a bit better. I think our Monstera plant is trying to take over our living room. But anyway, right, at that period of time, we weren't doing so great indoors. So we thought, well, why don't we plant some things outdoors, right? We're always up for a challenge. So we dug out a little vegetable patch in our 
garden and we started planting things. And uh, amazingly, over that period of time, we didn't kill them, right? It was incredible. We got carrots and beetroots and green beans and peas and rocket. I say rocket, but rocket, it's rocket just, you can't ever get rid of rocket once you plant it. So it's probably still that we've now sold that house. Someone's moved in. They've probably relayed the lawn and rocket is still probably growing through that lawn, right? But the thing that I learned along the way about this is that I'm in absolutely no control of anything once it goes in the ground. Like, I can plant it, I can buy soil, I can put it in, I can water it, I can you know, put slug killer around it or whatever. Right? I can do all of that stuff, but the reality is once it goes in the soil, I'm in absolutely no control. That's why we could get out one massive carrot next to another carrot that was like three centimeters long, right? They were planted the same way in the same soil, but I am not in control. All I could do was plant things in the soil. And we often say things in church, right? Like man judges the outward appearances, but God sees the heart. And here's the thing, when it comes to the work of grace in our lives, the discipline, the practices, the stuff that we do is just the soil. It's only the soil. All we can do through discipline is the soil, the inner work, the transformation that happens in our lives. That's grace. And we learn the rhythms of grace because through the decisions we make, the practices we establish, the habits we form, that's just the soil in which the grace allows things to grow. And we can't do anything to make it happen or be in control. Discipline is just the soil in which the grace of God is allowed to grow in my life and in yours. Discipline. The way of Jesus means desire. We have to want it. We have to hunger. We have to long. We have to follow Discipline means denial. It means that I set myself down, right? It means self-denial in an age of self-fulfillment, right? Where myself is everything in the world. Jesus says, you got to put yourself down if you want to find life. And Jesus says, the way that we get there is the way of discipline. Discipline which forms rhythms of life that we might be deep people and deeply formed as people full of the life of God. And discipline which forms rhythms of grace. All our willpower isn't enough. Grace means we can't just opt out of letting it work itself out in our lives. And grace means that we can't do it by ourselves. We need to learn grace. And discipline is the soil in which it grows.